So, enough commercials. Genesis chapter 32. Chapter 32. And the title tonight is Encountering God. And we've been studying Jacob. We're in this series right now where it's primarily focused on Jacob. Jacob is going to have a personal encounter with God tonight. Um, and he's heading back to the promised land. If you were here last week, you know, God had told him before, go back, I'll be with you, I'll bless you, I'll protect you. So he's heading that way, but he's not there yet. So chapter 32, verse 1, I'm going to read the first couple of verses because it says, Jacob went on his way, he's heading back, but the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this place, this is the camp or the campsite of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. And if you look up the translation, Mahanaim means two camps. In other words, what Jacob was trying to say, my camp is all of my people, my relatives, my animals. God has just revealed to me his camp, and it's a camp of angels. But if you were here for Revelation and other parts of Genesis, remember angels is not the people we see in the movies are not people with robes and wings. It means messenger. There's some sort of messenger from the Lord. And I, there, there's a great verse in, in Hebrews that kind of remind us of that. Let's look at it together on screen. It says, all, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So these angels are there to serve Jacob in a way. And, and my belief would be protection. We'll talk about that more in a second. Because here's, here's what we don't know, really. What, is, what do they look like? We don't know. Don't know what they look like. Um, where'd they come from? Heaven, but we don't know why they came. I would make the case, though I believe anyway, that they're there to protect Jacob. God showed him that camp of angels to give him security, to give him peace. And, and he couldn't see them, though, until God revealed them to him. And here's what we do know. That's what we don't know what they look like, and why they're there exactly. What we do know, he had to leave Laban. Remember Laban? He was the bad guy last week, kind of. In that pagan area, he was behaving terribly, had tricked Jacob numerous times. Jacob had to get out of that area to see these angels. So if you're taking notes, that's the first thing you might want to write down tonight. Um, if we, us, if we want to personally encounter God like Jacob will shortly, we got to leave the world behind. Jacob had to leave his pagan world, if you will. We don't have to leave our pagan world. We kind of do, but we have to leave the, the control over it that it has over us. We can't prioritize it. We have to get away from it. We have to focus on this world, this world in a way, God's world. And if we want to have a real face-to-face -face personal encounter with the Lord up close and personal, it, it usually will require us to leave the worldly influences that we have in our lives behind. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. So he's heading toward, by the way, think of the story. He's heading to meet Esau. That's the whole context of this first part of the story. So here's what he's going to do in verse 3. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir in the country of Edom, where Jacob had went to as soon as he got sort of tricked out of his birthright. And he instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant, don't miss that, your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban. And by the way, we, we learned last week it had been over 20 years. And I've remained there until now. 
what he's kind of saying in between the lines is, I hope you've forgiven me. Uh, and we'll see that clearly, I think, in a few more verses. But look what he says next. I have cattle, donkeys, sheep, goats, male and female servants. I am sending this message to my Lord. So he's called himself a servant. He's called now Esau his Lord, that I may find favor in your eyes. Jacob has had 20 long years to think about his own behavior. Um, do you think he has any regrets of, of how he behaved? I think so, because we can see that in his actions almost. Because look what he, he does here. Jacob is making the first move toward reconciliation. He's not waiting on Esau to find him. He's going to reach out. Then he's, he's just humbled himself, called himself Esau's servant, and he also called him Esau his lord. And now in the end of those verses, he's asking for favor, that I might find favor in your eyes. Which kind of reminded me of a verse out of Philippians that we all know pretty well. It's Philippians 2. Let's look at it. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Think about Jacob's early part of his life. He was selfish. He had a lot of ambition. He doesn't know this verse because this is New Testament, but he's starting to kind of behave like this. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility, and we just saw that, value others above yourselves. That's for us, by the way. Don't look toward your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others, toward other people. Don't focus on yourself, focus on others. Jacob is getting there, not quite there yet, but he, he's at least going down the right path finally. Um, we'll see that, I think, as we keep studying. Our next verse, verse 6 says, When the messengers returned, so they went to Esau, now they're coming back to Jacob. When they returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, now he's coming to meet you. Jacob might be going, uh-oh, hope this goes well. But look what they tell him next. Now he's probably really not going to like this part. And 400 men are with him. That sounds kind of like an army, doesn't it? So not only is Jacob a little bit nervous, here comes an army of people with my brother that threatened. Because the last that Jacob knows, by the way, Esau threatened to kill him. That was 20 years ago. And if you also remember way back in those earlier chapters, his mom said, when it's safe, I'll send for you. She never did. So as far as he knows, it's likely still unsafe. So I think he's hoping to meet Esau, but he's probably hoping to meet Esau by himself. Definitely he's not wanting 400 guys to be part of the picture. So what's he going to do? How's he going to respond? We'll see in the very next verse exactly how he responds. Verse 7 says, in great fear and distress. I'm sure that's over those 400 men. Jacob, so what's he going to do about it? Well, we'll see. Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. So he made two complete separate groups. And he thought, it says in verse 8, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Why is he fearful? Why is he in great distress? I think it's really guilt. He's feeling guilty of what he did. He knows that the, it, the promise was for him anyway, but he did kind of act terribly. He dressed up, remember, in goat skins and imitated his brother, tricked his poor dad. He's feeling guilty. He's had 20 years of a guilty conscience, and so he's, he's afraid. 
he, he, I think he knows he made a mistake, and he's, he's, sorrow, he's sorry for it. Um, I'm not going to put this one on screen, but I'll read it to you. Um, I did run across a Spurgeon quote. Um, it's getting to be a habit, isn't it? I think I did one last week. Um, this, here's what Spurgeon said. He taught a whole sermon on this little section right here. Here's what Spurgeon said. You cannot do a wrong without being haunted by it afterwards. You cannot do a wrong without being haunted. Guilty conscience. That's exactly what Esau has. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I could raise mine for you. How many of us have had a guilty conscience? When you do something wrong, you know it. You hope nobody else does, but you know it. And more important than that, God knows it. So I think Jacob has had 20 years to just feel guilty in a way. But he doesn't trust God. We, we, we thought he might. He sees glimpses of hope and trust, but look what he's doing. Um, let's go back to the first verse I read. He saw a camp of angels that I made the case were there to protect him. What's he going to do? Make his own camp. He said, I saw God's camp, but I need another one. I need my version. I need to get my people into two camps. And then if you go back another whole chapter to last week, and God said it really in a couple of chapters in a row, God told him, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. I'll be with you. Over and over. He's heard that out of God's really own mouth because he heard it out loud. If God is with him, does it really matter there's 400 people coming? And a camp of angels there to probably fight for you? He's going to come up with his own human idea, human plan, like we've seen all through the book of Genesis. A lot of human plans that go bad. Um, this one don't necessarily go bad, but it's still not a good reason for doing it, his own wisdom. He's letting his fear drive his decision is what it really amounts to. His fear is almost consuming his mind, and he's knee-jerk reacting and making decisions based on that fear and distress, which brings up our second main point tonight. For us, we can't let our fears and our feel, really our feelings either. I've talked about feelings for a couple of weeks in a row. Sometimes our feelings get in the way of what God promises. We can't let our fears or our feelings negate this. God said, I'll be with you. God meant that. Jacob is just not owning it. He, he knows it, and he's even going to quote it later in our text tonight, but he's not really internalizing it. Like he hears it, but somehow he's not really believing it fully anyway. So what's our kind of real-world application? Well, I've got two, one for Jacob, one for us. For Jacob, I think the application would be Okay, guys, I, I hear you're saying there's 400 men, but God has promised to protect me. I'm going to go with that. God's going to protect us. So let's just keep going. No two camps, no dividing, none of that nonsense. We're just going to go with what God said, that he's going to protect me. And if he protects me, he's protecting all of you. So it's kind of like a package deal. That was for Jacob, but he didn't do that. For us, and, and you've heard this before, this is not my saying. I don't even know where it came from, by the way. A lot of pastors use it. This is our application, though, about this concept. My God is bigger than my problems. My God, your God, your God is bigger than your problems. If we just keep that in our mind, it doesn't matter that what looks to us like horrible things are coming. Life's storms, this 400-person army. Yes, that's a big problem, but my God is bigger than that. And he promised to protect me. I'm just going to rest on those promises. Jacob doesn't do that. 
Let's see what he does next. Verse 9. But Jacob prayed. It says, then Jacob prayed, O God of my father. Doesn't say my God still. He's still not there on that one either. That'll be next week, I think, before we finally see that one fully. O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, I'll make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you've shown your servant. I only had my staff when I crossed this Jordan. He means the first time when he was going to find a wife. But now I've become two camps. What he's really saying, if you think about it, you've blessed me so much, I've had to divide my people, my possessions, my animals into two camps. I came here with a stick, now I've got two camps of stuff. So he's praying a humble prayer, but he's still not quite there. Let's read some more. Verse 11. He says, save me, I pray. Save me from these 400 men, is what I think he means, from the hand of my brother Esau. For I'm afraid. I'm afraid he'll come attack me and also the mothers with their children. So not just me. I have some concern for my family, too. He's afraid. He's desperate. He's imagining literally the worst possible outcome. Esau and these 400 people are going to massacre all of us. But you know what? If you think about it, where's the proof of that belief? Does he have any real proof besides this 20-year-old statement when Esau said, I'm going to kill you? For all he knows, it's going to be a family reunion. Now, the 400 army might be what's scaring him, but he's literally imagining the worst. You know, sometimes we do that. Don't we imagine the worst? Even though we know we shouldn't, our mind just jumps. And who's behind that, by the way? Satan. Satan. Our enemy wants us to imagine the worst. He didn't want us to rest on God's promises. He doesn't want Esau, I mean, Jacob to do it either, and he's not. But look at that prayer. Let me read that again. Save me. In a way, it's almost a prayer of salvation. It's not exactly like how we do it nowadays in the New Testament version, but in kind of, in a way, he's crying out to God, save me, save me, Lord. He's asking God to save him, and God will, but God already promised that in chapter after chapter. But he only cries out to God when it's critical. Have you noticed that yet about him? He, he doesn't seem to pray much unless things are desperate. And the other day, um, I was just flipping channels in my car driving back to lunch, and because I don't live very far from here. And I was flipping past a country music station. Anybody like country music in here? Yes, I see a few hands. It's okay, we're a minority, but I, I listen to it too. Here's, here's the lyrics I heard when I flipped the channels. It says, who am I to expect a savior if I only talk to God when I need a favor? Let me read that again. Now you're going to go find the song. You can Google it when you get home. Who am I to expect a savior if I only talk to God when I need a favor. That's pretty cool, isn't it? And it's a kind of top 40 country song. Don't hold me to which one it is, but it's out there. It's popular. You can Google it. Thank me later. Okay, back to our text. Um, verse 12. But you have said, so he's, he's quoting what God said now. You have said, I will surely make you prosper. I'll make your descendants like the sand of the sea that cannot be counted. So he remembers exactly what God said because he's literally quoting it back to God in this prayer. He just seems to be doubting it. 
he's, he's doubting God's going to take care of him. So what's he going to do? Make more plans. He's already come up with this two-camp plan. Now he's going to come up with even a, a different, a multi-layered plan, as I would call it. <clears throat> Verse 13 says, he spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. And it's a big gift, by the way. 200 female goats, 20 male goats, 200 ewes, 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows, 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys, and 10 male donkeys. He put them, all that, in the care of his servants, each herd by itself. And then he said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between these herds. So he staggered the gifts and lined them up. Why is he doing that? In case the first gift doesn't work, maybe he'll take the next one. Maybe he'll take the third one. He's kind of hedging his bets in a way. He still doesn't trust God. Then look what he says in 17. Then he instructed the one that's in the lead, I think the servant in the front. When my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to? What's all this stuff? Where are all these animals? Where are you going? Who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. So he does call himself servant again. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he's coming behind us. As we'll see in a few minutes, he's coming way behind us. I mean, way behind us. And by the way, if he really believes God that's going to protect him, like he's quoting back, why is he in the back at all? And, and really, he should be up front welcoming Esau face to face. He should man up, but he's not. Let's keep reading. You'll see what I mean. Verse 19. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others. So there's probably at least four different staggered gifts, according to the text, who follow the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. Always behind us. Don't miss that. And then it tells us his real belief. For he thought, he being Jacob, I will pacify him with these gifts I'm sending on ahead. Later, when I see him in the very, very, very back of the procession, perhaps he'll receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead, but he himself spent the night in the camp. It's an elaborate plan, all this stage gifting to buy Esau's favor. Where's he at? Back in the camp. But he's still not going to go. We're going to see some more kind of extra layers of, of lagging behind we'll see in verse 22. That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives, his two female servants, all those ladies the last few weeks that had all those kids for him, his 11 sons, that was the result of all those, remember, he sleep with my servant type deal, and they all crossed the ford of the Jabbok, which is the river. After he had sent them, and that means all of them, across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So now he's sending everybody else, all the people, children, women, servants, all the animals, all the possessions, all the belongings. Where's he at? Still in the camp. Still behind. He's putting everybody up front now. He's going dead last, literally dead last. But I think God allowed it, and I'll explain why in a second, because I'm going to read the next verse, which is kind of a difficult verse um, for a lot of people to sort of maybe understand. Let me read it, and you'll see what I mean. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. 
We've heard this story. We know Jacob wrestled with God, but the text says, man, that's why it's a little hard to understand sometimes. But before we talk about that, that's coming in a second. Just hold on. I want to focus on the first part. Jacob was all alone. He was left alone. I think God sort of allowed that to happen. God, God is God. He knows this dumb stage gift plan, but he wants Jacob by himself. Why would that be? He wants all the distractions removed. He wants his attention laser-focused on God, which is our next point if you're taking notes. This is for us. When do we listen to God best? When we're alone, don't we? We listen to God best when we're alone, when all the distractions of the world are removed. That's why I believe, anyway, God allowed this plan to play out. He wants Jacob by himself where he can confront him, talk to him, deal with him. Now let's talk about the second half of that verse. It says, a man wrestled with him till daybreak. But don't miss how it's worded. <clears throat> In other words, the order. It says, a man, we'll discuss that in a second too. A man wrestled with Jacob. It doesn't say, Jacob wrestled with a man. In other words, the other way around. Why am I emphasizing the order that it describes that? To me, it tells us who initiated the wrestling match. In other words, the man grabbed Jacob and started wrestling. It wasn't Jacob finding some random stranger and picking a fight. So God initiated for Jacob's good. We'll talk more about that in a second. So who is this man? We've talked about this before on multiple Wednesdays, I think. You know, we have the benefit, by the way, of the New Testament. We know the Trinity. These guys would not have known about that. The Trinity has always existed. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But we'll look at a verse in a few minutes that will make it real clear it can't be God the Father. So who is it? Jesus. He's fighting with Jesus, essentially. Um, and here's why we can understand it, by the way. And I'm not going to spend all night trying to make us understand it because, trust me, I don't fully get it either. We just have to believe God's word and accept it at face value sometime. And, and clearly later he's going to say, I fought with God. And we know the story as Jacob wrestling with who? God, because that's who it is. But, you know, we're just humans. We're human beings. We have simple, what I would call a finite mind. Um, I hate to tell you, but your mind is finite. It's not, doesn't go forever. Mine doesn't either. So as human beings with a finite mind, how could we ever comprehend an infinite God? It's too much to think about sometimes, some of these things. In other words, you can go home and beat yourself to death and lay in your bed and imagine all kind of crazy stuff trying to figure out how could this be God, but it says it's a man in, in the text. Well, don't forget, we're, we're using English that's three languages, you know, removed, and Scripture says it's God, so we just have to go with that. So don't always try to overanalyze what God's Word says, because our finite mind may not be able to. But I'm with you. See, I'm right there with you. Mine's finite, too. It's, it's Jesus, but I think I'll, I'll sort of prove that to you in a few minutes. Let's keep reading, though. Verse 25. When the man, it calls him a man again, saw that he could not overpower him, that would be Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. 
if we almost overanalyze that one, we'll focus on he could not overpower him. But we're going to see in a few minutes that it's God. So I would say we need to look at it a little differently. It's not that he could not. He didn't want to. He didn't want to. God can overpower any of us, including Jacob, at will, anytime he feels like it. He knows, though, that Jacob needs this all-night-long wrestling match. It's for Jacob's benefit. So a better way, I think, to, to see it is not that he couldn't, he didn't want to. Does that make sense? Um, and, and here's a, another good proof of that. Look what happens. He says, the instant he touched Jacob's hip, it dislocated out of socket. And if you're kind of, imagine two guys grappling, fighting, wrestling, if your hip is dislocated, you just lost. It's over. You're done. You got no more leverage. All God had to do was touch it. No, no man, no, no person can do such a thing. If this was like an MMA match, grappling, he just got submitted. You know, that one touch, he's done. And I think he knows it, but why would God want to prolong this? Why would it want to go all night, as we'll see in a few minutes? There's a lot of Jacob to get out of Jacob, is my take on that one. Just like there's probably a lot of us to get out of us. God is wrestling, if you will, symbolically with Jacob to get Jacob out of Jacob. Because at the end of our story, he gets a new name. You know the story. He has to get Jacob out of there, though, first almost. And what I mean by Jacob out of there, get all the bad behavior. We just saw bad behavior. He's making plans, not consulting the Lord. He's still being Jacob in a lot of ways. But by the way, how many of us, let's think more us. Forget about Jacob for a second. How many of us, we, I would think anyway, have not physically wrestled with God? But how many of us have wrestled with God mentally? Mentally, just anguished over something we know God told us to do, know God's commands, know God's sort of behavior he requires us to do, follow him. But we wrestle and make excuses of why we can't do such a thing. How many of us have wrestled with God spiritually? Well, God, I know what your word says, but I still like this kind of uh, sort of a little sinful activity over here on the side. We're wrestling with God mentally, spiritually. It may not be physically like Jacob, but really it's for the same reason Jacob's doing it. We don't want to let go sometime, do we? Which brings up our next point. God gave Jacob many chances. He gives us many of the chances too. He wants us to willingly let go of our old self, our old man as Scripture calls it sometime. But sometimes... Like we see in this text, God has to wrestle it out of us. He's wrestling Jacob out of Jacob, and it took all night because Jacob wouldn't submit. Let's keep reading. I'm going to read the first half of 26. It says, Then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. He could have broke the hold any time. And to us, it almost sounds like, Oh my gosh, I don't understand that. So what I mean by this is a hard story. How could that wrestling match, as I keep putting it, go on all night until daybreak? It's by God's design. It's to help Jacob. It's for his good. But here's my next question for all of us, because tonight's a lot about questions for us. 
How many of us, if we think all night long, oh my gosh, I can't understand that. How could anybody fight God like that? That just seems too hard to understand. How many of us, and I'll raise my hand on this one, have wrestled with God for years? Years. See, I see some hands. Years. This is just one night. We've done it for a lot longer time. Once again, maybe not physically like this story describes, but we've still wrestled with God, um, our behavior. Here's my next question, though. During all those years I'm, I'm throwing out there, like for some of us, could God have defeated us any given moment he wanted to? Of course. He could have touched my hip, your hip, symbolically. Did he? No. He wants us to get there on our own, just like he wants Jacob to get there on this long night. He lets us fight because we're resisting. He wants us to sort of say, I give. He wants us to cry uncle, as I used to put it when I was a kid. That's what God's after. Jacob won't do it. We didn't either. We went years. So if you think about our own self and put ourselves in this story, it's a lot more believable, isn't it, that he fought God all night when we've done it half our life, some of us. He wanted us to let go just like he wanted Jacob to let go. I think Jacob at this point, though, because his hip's out, he knows he's defeated. Let me read the second half of 26. I didn't finish it. It said, Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And I think we can also miss the real intention on this one. Because um, if, if we read it too fast and don't think about it, we almost see that in our mind Jacob is winning because he says, I won't let you go. I think if you look at the real context of how it's written and, and apply that it's God he's fighting with, Jacob is hanging on for dear life. He's like, I'm not letting you go until you, he's probably got his ankle or something, you know, at this point. It's not that he's winning the, the wrestling match. He's desperate. He, he realizes he's beaten. His hip is out. He has no more leverage. He's begging for a blessing so he can kind of let go finally. He knows someone greater is really in the battle. He, he realized, he's starting to think, I believe anyway, this is God. Um, this is a God in a, the flesh somehow, some way. He may not understand it just like we don't, but I think he's starting to get who it is, and, and we'll see that later in our text. But there's a verse out of Hosea that mentions this same story, and, and I want us to look at that one. It's Hosea 12. Let's read it together. It says, even in, it, it talks about Jacob always fighting. Even in the womb, Jacob struggled with his brother. Remember we talked about his name was heel catcher, really deceiver. When he became a man, he even fought with who? God. He even fought with God. Not a man, he fought with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and won. Another interesting translation. I'll get to that in a second too. He wept. That's a, not in our text. Genesis doesn't say he wept. This, I think, proves that he's defeated. As I put it, hanging on for dear life. He wept and pleaded for a blessing from him. There at Bethel, he met God face to face, and God spoke to him. Met God, God spoke. But it does say angel. Once again, you've got to think about, we've translated this three different languages. And by the way, uh, I think we talked about it one week, I mean, months ago. Hebrew and Aramaic both have multiple words for the same thing, and we know the word love, for example. You know, there's four kinds of love. We teach them at church sometime. 
brotherly love, romantic love, erotic love, etc. They have a different word. In English, what do we have? Love. Angel can also be translated. The word they got angel from is the root word is what I mean. Can also be translated as, let me tell you this one, priest. So plug the word priest in that sentence. That he wrestled with the priest and won. In other words, God's high priest. It also can be translated as ambassador. If God the Father in heaven sent Jesus, go wrestle with Jacob until he submits. He would be, in my mind anyway, God's ambassador that day. So priest, ambassador, or finally messenger. That's better translation than our English word of angel. And then Hosea said, God spoke. God spoke. So let's keep reading. Verse 27. Now we're down to 27. The man asked him, the man being Jesus, by the way, in my opinion. You make your own mind up, but I, I would strongly encourage you this, Jesus. What is your name? Jacob, he answered. What is, the man asked him, what is your name? What's Jacob say? Jacob. Once again, terrible translation on our English Bible part. Think of it this way. Let me reread it, and it'll make a lot more sense. Jesus asked him, what is your name? Deceiver. Deceiver. Because when they heard the word Jacob, Remember, I, I spent one night talking about idioms, if you were here that night. They would have instantly thought deceiver. We think Jacob, they would have all thought deceiver. So when Jacob has to say his name out loud, he's saying, I'm a deceiver. I'm the deceiver. I am the deceiver almost. Satan is the real deceiver. Our Bible says Jacob. That leaves a whole lot of hidden meaning out of the, out of the text. If I read it as deceiver, it sounds a lot worse, doesn't it? Because look what the very next verse says. Then the man, which would be Jesus, says, Your name will no longer be deceiver, Jacob, but Israel. What does that mean? It means God rules or God prevails, depending on how you look at it. So your name is no longer deceiver. Your name is now God rules or God prevailed over you. Because, and then it explains why, you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. The humans he struggled with was Laban and those pagans. The God struggle is God that's speaking to him face to face. But here's, here's something to be kind of mindful of as we keep reading these texts the next couple of weeks. Even though his name has changed right here in this moment, interestingly enough in our Bibles, he's called Jacob still twice as often as Israel, twice as often. Why? Jacob's still not out of Jacob. He's had a name change from the Lord, but he's still behaving partially like Jacob, and you'll see that in our text next week and probably the week after. It's quite a while, chapters down the road, before he's known as Israel only because the old man has still got to come out. Then look what Jacob says next, though. Verse 29. Jacob says, kind of in a way he's saying, I told you my name, please tell me your name. Please tell me your name. But he replied, this man, this Jesus, as I keep saying, why do you ask my name? Why do you want to know? He doesn't answer, but it does say in that same verse, he blessed him there. In my opinion, anyway, he, he thinks Jacob should know who he is. 
He won't answer because he's kind of saying by not answering, Jacob, you already know. Think about it, son. I am God. He, he never will answer, by the way. He, he thinks Jacob should already know it, know who it is. And I think, by the way, in the next few verses, Jacob is going to know. He wants the blessing. He's hanging on for dear life. He, he's able now to receive it, by the way, I think anyway, because he, he's finally submitted. He's realized he's lost. God is for me. He's more powerful than me. I don't need any more of my dumb human plans. He's in submission. If it was MMA, like I referenced a while ago, he's, he, he's tapped out. He's done. He's hanging on for this dear life blessing, which brings up our last main point if you're taking notes. This, is, this quote was so good, I had to use it as a point. Sometime I'll use a verse, and tonight it's a quote. D.L. Moody. Let God have your life. He can do more with it than you can. Isn't that good? Let me say that again. For us, this is for us, for me, for you. Let God have your life. He can do way more with it than we can. That's a great concept. I think Jacob is now getting that. By submitting, as I keep putting it, he's saying, okay, God, you can have my life. God just changed his name. So what's Jacob going to do? Verse 30. Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, here's why, he knows who it is. I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Because Peniel, by the way, translates to face of God. He's, he's saying, I saw God's face, but my life was spared. That becomes important later. Think about the Moses story. What did God tell Moses? Exodus 33, 20. I'll read it to you. You cannot, remember Moses asked God, can I see you? You cannot see my face is what God tells him. No one may see my face and live. But Jacob just said he did. So then who would it be? Jesus. That didn't change. God told Moses that, but it's still in effect right now in Genesis. You can't see God the Father. Nobody can. But we will one day in heaven. The Holy Spirit, like I said, has no bodily form that we know of. It's never recorded anywhere, even in end times. Maybe he does in heaven. I guess we'll find out when we get there. But he definitely doesn't now. And if you can't see God, the Holy Spirit has no bodily form. Who is it by default? Jesus. He says, I saw God. And God allowed that to be written in his holy book. I'm going with it was God. And by default, like I said, it would be Jesus. But this place, this pineal, isn't really important because you don't hear much about it later. Um, what's important is what he learned there. What did Jacob learn? I had to, to, to yield. I had to submit. I had to lose, as I would put it. I had to lose, and what I mean by lose, lose Jacob. I had to let Jacob get out of the picture, lose my selfish nature, lose myself, which... To me, as I read that, reminding me of a verse out of Matthew, a New Testament verse that you know well, but let's look at it together. Remember this one? To find your life, what do you have to do? Lose it. Jacob just found that out. Whoever finds their life will lose it, 
and whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Jacob finally submitted and lost his life willingly. That's why the fight went on all night, because he wouldn't give. God could have just made him give anytime he felt like, and he kind of sped it up by touching his hip like that. But he wanted Jacob to get there on his own. He wanted Jacob to submit. We're almost done. Verse 31. It said, The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. That dislocated hip I talked about. And by the way, if you want to know where Peniel is, it's over in modern-day Jordan. You don't really see it mentioned. It's outside the promised land. It's not in Israel. This is on the way back. So the, real, the, the place it is important is what he learns there. But his hip is dislocated. Or it's probably back together now, but he's got a, a permanent limp, it sounds like. Therefore, in verse 32, it shows you how the Israelites always focus on the wrong thing. All those crazy laws they come up with. Here's what they take out of this story. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon. I don't want to eat a tendon anyway, do you? They won't eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Doesn't sound very appetizing, but they're totally focused on the wrong thing. It's a legalistic fact they kind of focus on. Whatever we do, don't eat that tendon. They kind of miss submitting to God, you know, yielding, doing things God's way. They miss that D.L. Moody quote too, I think. They try to do it with a bunch of rules and regulations. But here's what I think we should notice. God gave Jacob that day a physical reminder, this limp, of his spiritual encounter. So just imagine all those years Jacob is kind of limping around. Don't you think every time he limped, he would think what happened? And he's probably already made the case earlier he had 20 years of regrets. I bet he's thinking, if I would have just yielded, he wouldn't have touched my hip. I bet he would think that. I think I would. Why, in other words, why didn't I yield sooner? I wouldn't have this crazy limp anymore. But God is still working on Jacob, getting Jacob out of Jacob. So we're going to pray in close, but I think I, I want to pray kind of like focus on two things. In other words, how can we sum up this whole crazy story um, about meeting God, wrestling with God, having this encounter with God, as I titled it. To encounter God, now we wouldn't have a wrestling match, by the way, but to meet God through our quiet time, we've got to leave the world behind. We're not going to have a personal encounter with God if we're distracted by all the worldly stuff in our life. We've got to leave that kind of stuff behind. And then more important than that, I think, we have to submit to God. Quit fighting. Just submit. Don't, don't make God have to give us a limp. Because it may not be a physical limp. Maybe it's more of a financial limp. Or, or, you know, an emotional limp. I don't know. God's going to win, so let's just submit willingly. Let's do what Jacob didn't. So we're going to pray about those two things, that we would all, me included, and if you're watching online, we're going to pray that same thing for all of you. But before I do that prayer, if anybody doesn't know Jesus yet, maybe you're wrestling with God in your bed at night, not physically, but you're just wrestling with that decision about putting God first. Come down front. 
Let's talk as the service ends. Let's pray, and you just rededicate your heart back to the Lord. And he will honor that like he honored Jacob. But for the rest of us, let's just pray that we would do better at leaving the world behind and just yielding to God quicker. That'd be a good prayer, wouldn't it? So let's just pray for all of us to do that. Lord, we love you, and we just love learning from these old stories um, how to behave better than maybe they did, Lord. But we're just weak, imperfect people, as I said earlier, with a finite mind. So, Lord, let our finite mind understand you better. Help us to understand you, your word, even how it applies to our life. But, Lord, specifically tonight, I just pray that you would help all of us leave our world behind. Let the distractions and the, and the cares of this world just not even be a thought in our minds and, and just minimize our interaction with the world and our, its sinful nature. And Lord, um, secondly, just help us submit quicker and, and more thoroughly with a clean heart to you. We know what to do. We know what your word says. But Lord, sometimes, just like Jacob, we're slow to submit to your will. So help us submit 100%, give our whole heart, our whole life totally to you. But we need your help. Holy Spirit, help us submit better. In Jesus' name we pray. We all said, amen. amen. See you this weekend.